It's a bird. It's a plane. It's another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Today is another episode of Hot Take Tuesday. This is our news roundup format where we take the most important news stories of the day that affect bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped SaaS founders, and we bat them around and we give our hot takes on topics today ranging from whether we are actually experiencing a recession, how to think about that as a startup founder. We dig into chat GPT, which is the open AI project that is all the buzz right now. And we talk about Elon Musk acquiring Twitter and the drama or lack of drama, depending on your perspective around this entire endeavor. But as always, we relate it back to bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped startup founders who are trying to figure out how these events impact us and our companies, if at all. And all the while, I tried to keep my guests from derailing the podcast episode. So with that, let's dive in. Our first panelist for Hot Take Tuesday is Tracy Makes on Twitter. Tracy Osborne, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here. We had some good topics today. Our other panelist, many of you know him well, this dour gentleman to my left, Mr. Anar Volset, whose Twitter feed is filled with things that only make sense if you are actively watching the World Cup or a Giants game. Anar Volset, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm, I was upset this morning because it turns out that Aaron Judge is going to stay with the New York Yankees, which is a disaster. See what I mean? I have no idea what you're talking about. Is that a sports ball <laughs> thing? I was going to say, my brain just went, re. I don't know who you are or what. <laughs> I caught a baseball team in there, I think. And the man who is not going to derail today's episode, Mr. Anar Volset. Thank you for having me. It's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to kick it off with the topic that everyone's talking about this week. Chat.openai, which by the way, if you forget the name of this and you try to find it via a Google search... I couldn't because I couldn't remember it was called chat.openai. So I went in for like AI chat and artificial intelligence chat and a chat thing. And this and there's just all this crap out there. So they need to work on their SEO. I had to actually go to Twitter. Chat.ai hit the scene in the last week. Everyone seems to be searching for things, getting answers. Some are funny. A lot are accurate. Some are inaccurate. Are we already tired of seeing people post these conversations on Twitter? Tracy, you want to weigh in first? I was wondering if you're going to leave the Twitter part in because I know that one of our potential topics for today was talking about Twitter in general, and I have not been on Twitter in the last couple of weeks. But the sci-fi nerd in me feels like this is the first step to having a computer and then it like calculates and does things for you. Like you need to have some sort of like crappy AI that's, I don't know, being an AI. And so I think that's like on its own, really neat to kind of see this last few months of really picking up on this like idea of like, okay, this is the first step to something that could be like AI, I don't know, maybe Skynet apocalypse somehow in the future. Hopefully not. But Anar, do you, for one, welcome our future robot overlords? I, I do. That's a deep cut. Any, anyone, just me? <laughs> I do. I, I totally welcome our new overlords. I, I've been like an AI fan for, for like forever. It was one of the topics that I considered doing my PhD in. So I think it's amazing what they've done. It's, it fits the, per, it's like the perfect profile for like what's what amazing technology because A, everyone sort of kind of treats it as a toy at the moment. 
and the mainstream news hasn't really picked up on what's going on. Like that's one of the most shocking things to me about this. Like it, my Twitter feed is just nonstop chat GPT, nonstop, nonstop. And like, I read like the Wall Street Journal, the FT or the Times or whatever. And it's like nothing. It's like it didn't exist. I'm like, what is, what is happening here? Like, this is a giant step forward. And it's like they weren't even paying attention. You know, <laughs> this is the most shocking thing to me. But but yeah, I mean, I really like it. I think I think it'll ge- feed like the, the, the sort of the mill of people who are like, oh, no, AI is going to take over everything and blah, blah, blah. Like all the jobs are going to end. And like and it does do some amazing things with code generation and, and accessing APIs or that sort of thing. But I don't think it'll be like I don't think <laughs> I don't think Google will fire all its engineers and and just switch to Open GPT to put it that way. I, I don't I don't think that's on the cards. It was um, one of our portfolio company founders actually Pierre with Scraping B. He was like this morning he tweeted something. Did you see this tweet? It was like, hey, I figured out how Google can have a ninety percent profit margin. They should just have all their queries ask Chat GPT and they'll they'll have a ninety percent profit margin, <laughs> assuming ten trillion searches. You know. <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. But it is it is interesting because, I mean, one of the most interesting takes I've seen, so there's a bunch of stuff we can dive into because I've spent a lot of time with it, but one of the most interesting things is like, what does this do to Google? What does it do to search? Because people are like, well, this is actually better than my Google search interface now, which is quite something because the way, and, and it sort of makes sense because if you think about Google, like at least the way it used to be, it's like it generates value or information from the sort of link graph in the world versus with, with OpenGPT, it basically builds its intelligence based on the things that are on the internet, but it's not the links, it's the text and the implications of the text, you know? It's a very interesting model. It's genuinely one of the first things I've seen. I've been like, truly, this could hurt Google. Like, you know, not immediately. But something like that really could. And and people complain and they say, oh, it's just going to hallucinate facts. Like, that's fair. But I've also seen it, like, reference its sources. Like, I have a, there's a tooling that, that goes in. So instead of just calling, like, playing in the playground or whatever, you chain all these things together and you give it access to, you know, basically searching the web and fetching data from the web and summarizing data in the web and then referencing that data in the response. And that sort of gets rid of that, that concern because and you know the references sources. So so yeah, I'm super excited. I really like the space. It's probably overhyped at the moment. It usually tends to be. There'll be like a trough of sorrow in like 18 months when everything is in the crapper. But I think like two, three years from now, we'll look back and we'll be like, oh yeah, this underlying technology really enabled a couple of amazing new companies, at least. I'm sure about that. Yeah, I have memories. My job like 10 years ago, it was a lead generation for online education and they wanted to get like the SEO pages for like every, like, I don't know, like artistic degrees in New York, artistic degrees in Pennsylvania, artistic degrees in blah, 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 blah. And so this company I worked with like hired a whole, whole huge amount of writers. Like, you know, it was like 50 writers just like churning out all of these little snippets so they can have it on the pages and therefore the pages would rank in Google. Like, again, this is like 10 years ago. And so like that, that whole industry, I guess, of just hiring groups of writers like that is gone. And I'm happy for it. <laughs> it can seem like a pretty lame job anyways uh, for those folks. And I remember, I don't know, they were pretty unhappy too. Tracy, the content farm producer. Yeah, like yeah. It. 
Exactly. Yeah. Content farms. Yeah. That's the, that's the word for it. So that was my, my former job of like watching that happen. And I'm very happy that doesn't exist. I didn't really think about the replacing of Google, which is lovely to hear. That makes, makes me even more excited because, you know, me and everyone else in the world search for things on Google now. And it's just like, damn, you aren't, aren't as good as I remember used to be. Like, stop ignoring the words I'm using. Stop like switching out the, you know, oh, it's like Google saying like, oh, I know what you really want to search for. And I'm like, no, I know what I'm doing. I'm searching for the thing I want. Uh, and it just drives, like I've been just driven up the wall with Google. So like, that's exciting. I like this idea that we can have something that will be, take us back to the, to getting good information from my, you know, you have a query and you want to ask it. Can we call it Ask Jeeves? <laughs> I feel like this is a dream. This is the dream of Ask Jeeves. Ask yeah, Jeeves. Yeah. You've just invented something. <laughs> Register like, the, that's the what Jeeves com. promised. You Register put in a query com. and then you get the answer and we are finally there. Yeah. It just took that. a while. It's a trip. 25 years later. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things too is like, if you think about it, it allows you to, to, to give context and expand in a way that doesn't really work all that well with Google. So it's hard for me to do the following. Do a broad search on Google and then have a subset of those results and then search within those results, but only those results and like do that two or three times. Yeah. But like a language type model that remembers state is a much more natural way to interact with with the data set in that way. So there's a bunch of things there that are very interesting. State is a big deal. Yeah, I think so. State is a huge deal. Can you imagine when this is built into our Amazon Echoes and the Google Homes or whatever, and you can literally just ask the question and actually get an answer? Because today it's garbage. Like you ask Alexa something and she's like, According to blah, and cites something, and it's it's half the time it's garbage. It doesn't answer your question. Like if, and then you get an ad afterwards. And then yeah, <laughs> I don't. I must be paying for premium or something. But oh, some some people are talking about getting ads. Where it's like, also, did you know? Oh, blah 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 blah, or something. Like that. I don't have an Alexa. I just hearing people talking about how like they're trying to throw ads in. Anyways, continue. But in order for this to work and replace like Google searches or whatever, if I'm in a browser, because I think in terms of voice interaction, this is just head and shoulders above, you know, anything we see in the space, you know, once they adapted to that. In terms of actual Google searches, at first when someone started suggesting like Google's in trouble, I see it on Twitter, you know, where they type in like, what's the average rainfall in the Amazon basin? And then it gives a response or whatever. But A, it, it has to be right. <laughs> it needs to be at least reasonably accurate and it's not today. So that's that's refinement though. And then to your point, Anar, I want to see it reference sources of some kind because that's important. When I do a Google search and I see 10 results, I'm absolutely looking at those domains. I look at the headline to see the result and then I'm like, who told me this? So for example, I just searched how many Google searches result in zero clicks because I actually think this is perfect for that, right? Sometimes I want to search and I want to say top websites for this, or I want a list of 10 apps that do something because I'm trying to compare them, right? And in Google, that works today because I get 10. But there is a portion of time where I literally just want to know a fact. I want to convert Fahrenheit to Celsius. I want to know the average rainfall in the Amazon basin to reference that far side comic once again. I want to know something that maybe is a little plane flight duration from here to there, whatever. And those zero clicks, which I th they're around 20, 20 to 30%, depending on how you count it, according to Search Engine Land. So I did that search in Google just now, and I saw all these numbers, and they're all conflicting. And Search Engine Land is a brand I trust, or at least it's a resource that I trust to be relatively accurate. And so that's what I want, is knowing the source helps me have confidence in the results, right? Which I think, I think GPT can, can add, as you said. The other thing is I thought to myself, you know, when I want, what if I want, five or 10 different SaaS apps because I just want to kind of noodle through them. Well, you could ask 
What are we calling it? Chat GPT. GPT three is the underlying thing. Okay. Yeah. Chat, Chat GPT. GPT. That's why you didn't find anything. GPT is like the, the no, because I was like open AI chat, blah blah blah. But so if Chat GPT, I could just ask it, give me the top ten, blah, and it could give me the ten, right? That was a, like a mental hurdle early on. I'm like, well, I like having a bunch of results in a Google search. Chat GPT could do that if you just ask it. Yeah. You just, you just you learn how to, to use the, it's just slightly different <laughs> interface. It's really interesting. It allows you to think and, and like ask, really ask queries about over data sets that you couldn't possibly because you were not Google. Like Google could figure things out like this, but you can't because you, they've constrained the interface to be this, like this is what it does and the technology doesn't understand if you query it differently. Whereas with, you know, OpenGPT, really like you could, you know, you can query it in different ways. And that's sort of the most interesting thing because you could have your own special way to talk to the Oracle, whatever, that gives you the data in a certain way that you really, you really want. That's only the way that you do it. Like that's not possible in Google, which is pretty cool. Think about that interface. Inside a company, like we spent so much development time pulling a report for our BI team or pulling a report for the CEO about metrics and this and that, that, you know, we didn't have metrics. And like, imagine if you had this interface over a, a SQL database and... You know, certain people. Have. Yeah, and they actually still exist. You should look at some of the language models that chain them together, where it's like you basically just describe. So instead of writing API code and having your code doing it, you have a description that's just a word description of what this is, what the API does. You know, here's the parameters. This is the kind of questions and answers you can get. Go use this API, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Like, you know, like then you can chain these things together and you can do honestly what a lot of developers do, which is chain different APIs together and add some secret sauce. Like that becomes much more fungible and much easier to do. And then it can hallucinate facts. <laughs> mm, yeah. Someone said, someone said, said on Twitter, again, I get, clearly I live on Twitter. And so someone said, you know, one one of these days, very soon, as like uh, an open AI will hallucinate. You know, basically come up with something that isn't true, and we will just assume that it is, and we won't find out until it's been 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 considered a fact for years. That's <laughs> going to be one of the challenges, right? I feel like I kind of do that with Google's instant results. <laughs> you know, I just take them by by fact too, and I'm like, oh, I trust Google, but like, I don't know, it could have been feeding me wrong facts. The other day, I searched for converting so-and-so euros to USD, which has always worked perfectly, except for last time it decided, I think it took my local location and instead of doing USD, it did Canadian. So I just like completely ignored that side of the thing. And I almost grabbed the number before I realized that the little calculator said. Canadian dollars are pretty much worthless, right? Just like uh, two, four or five dollars. take Tuesday. <laughs> yep. Which is, why, <laughs> which is why I wanted to do USD, but it was just like, even Google's like, I don't know. It feels like they're getting, I was going to say getting wronger. <laughs> They're getting worse. Like, and it's just like, oh, come on. It says my query has USD. Like, it's right there. <laughs> yeah, wrapping up this section so we can move on to the next topic. Tracy, I want to get your thoughts on, like, it feels to me like a lot of AI is open source slash commoditized. It's given away. So this is a show about startups, right? About building SaaS companies, B2B in a lot of cases. Like, is there an approach? What's the path to bootstrap or mostly bootstrap a great company in this space? Or is this one of those spaces where that maybe just isn't, you know, isn't likely to happen? I think about like VR, for example, and it's hard to bootstrap in that space, right? You can be a game developer, you can be an indie game developer, but actually like B2B stuff, it's either expensive to build or whatever, you know? So I'm just, I'm curious to get your, get your thoughts. I mean, it's kind of like, my husband's an author of, of, of the popularist, whatever the word, of Python open source project, Eurolib3. And 
you know, it, it sucks that he built something that's used in like pretty much any system that's using Python. If you're using PIP or virtual end, it's using those systems. But it's the same situation where there was a tool that was created. It was open source. People did it for the love of uh, everything. And then it is being used in companies that are now the startups that can do more because they have these open source tools. So there's like the same thing when it comes to AI. And it sucks that... There's probably a lot of work just like in open source where a lot of people are putting out a lot of hours of their time. They're not being paid for those hours of time. And then it's going to be used in other places where the companies are going to be the ones creating revenue. So it's the same situation as the open source world. And the open source world is constantly doing conversations about how do we fund open source creators? How do we like support them? And it usually is around foundations and grants and big organizations like Google, like paying out for those, like some of the largest ones. And, you know, possibly that's what's going to happen to happen with AI, right? Where it's like, how do we, I don't know, support the development of this? But then there's going to be this whole other layer of startups that are going to be building, utilizing these tools. And we at TinySeed have backed at least two AI-focused companies. So we, it's all B2B stuff. You can look it up on the portfolio page. But So we think there's some opportunity there. But I'm curious, as we wrap this topic, Anar, you have other thoughts on that about what it, whether there's opportunity here, whether it's going to be an uphill battle due to the kind of like the hotness. Is it so popular everyone's going to jump in? Yeah, I mean, uh, unlike Tracy, I'm like not like an open source communist. <laughs> Hot take <laughs> Tuesday. <laughs> no, no, I'm only kidding. But I think like I, I actually worry less about like, oh, is this open built in open source and then commercialized? Like, you know, that that I understand that take. I think one of the more bigger challenges is like, you know, let's look at right now. What is the best tool out there? Like large language model. It's, you know, open AIs, whatever, blah, blah, blah. That's a commercial tool. I think what will happen is people will experiment with this on like an open source or closed source, you know, free version, get to where they want to do. And then they'll realize, okay, we have to train our own models. I think that becomes a key thing. Like, I think if you're going to do an AI startup, eventually you'll end up like at least fine tuning or if not building your own you know, models from scratch, you know, obviously using libraries and things. The way that I think of ChatGPT is, like I said, it's similar to Google, like do you build a startup on Google? No, not really. You don't sort of, you can't build that into as the foundation and then build on top of it. You can build alongside it. You can build competitors. You can use tooling, whatever. But I think it's the same thing with, with OpenGPT. Is like, it's sort of an amazing tool. I think it'll be hard to have a competitive moat if you don't have your own language, if you don't have your own training sets, if you don't have your own model. Uh, I think that would be true. Right, because otherwise it's a commodity. It's kind of like forking an open source project and just trying to sell it without. Yeah, I, I do think like some there's opportunity certainly for people to write, you know, who uses or you can license or, or or do this kind of thing, and then you know customize that interface to whatever work situation makes a lot more sense than just like a, a, an API call or like a chat interface. I do think that makes a lot of sense for people. But for example, I don't think everybody, everybody, I mean, and this is already going on, like the best example of this is all these like copywriting AI companies. You know, basically, like you could do whatever it is that they do uh, using OpenGPT, and it'll be much cheaper than their interface. But the fact is, their customers don't care that much, they just want the value from it. And so if it's 25 times more expensive, but it's more tailored to their use case, maybe the models tuned a little bit, that makes a lot of sense for them. Our next topic is the worldwide economic climate. Case in point, when I go to Google and say, is the US in a recession right now? The top result from Forbes.com says, yes, we entered it in summer of 2022. The next result says no. And that's from another relatively reputable source. So my question to you, Tracy, 
we see a lot of companies across our portfolio. Do you have thoughts on whether, you know, are we seeing evidence of recession across B2B SaaS companies or in, I don't know, in your everyday life? I want to note that there's like a layering of hot takes because when you're looking at Google and you're reading these results, then it's like the one one is a hot take saying, yes, we're in a recession. And then one is a hot take saying, no, we're in a recession. And then here we are hot taking and hot taking on the hot takes. Anyways, just noted that. Company-wise, I mean, hmm, I don't know. I am not an economics person. And so I feel like there's like scientific things around a recession. There are there's people talking about having trouble closing enterprise deals. I think Aner probably can speak more towards that in terms of people like well not wanting to spend spend right now. They want to save and you know maybe punt on some of the big big deals that could be going through. Uh, there are a lot of people who are doing quite well. So I don't know, you know, you guys probably can speak more about what the difference is between those two companies. And the way I've been describing it is between Tiny Seed and my own stuff, I'm invested in, I think it's like 125, 127 companies. And at any given time, just in normal times as things are growing, there's always a chunk, 15, 20% who are growing really well. There's a certain number, maybe 15, 20% who are really struggling. And then there's this whole middle that is growing decently, but not amazingly. And, you know, they're figuring things out. And those numbers aren't exact, but you get the idea. They haven't quite shifted, right? Like, it feels like it's been relatively the same. No, I feel like it has shifted. I feel like they're, if it's normally 15, 20% are seeing slower growth, I think that number maybe is like 25 to 35% right now. Like, it's not everyone, Mm. but I think the number is larger. And this is, there's a bit of gut feel here, right? I mean, we can look at the graphs and such, but that's kind of my sense of it. And I'm definitely hearing more... I'm hearing more chatter about that from companies I'm invested in. Now, I also wonder if sometimes that... Is it kind of like a loop? I mean, I'm not saying the that there, there's things that aren't, are definitely happening right now, but you know, once people start talking about it and more people start talking about it and then everyone gets worried about it. So I don't, again, I'm not actively tracking this. Yeah. A&R, what do you think? I believe that I saw in the sort of May-June timeframe, July, definitely a spike in churn. I, I think around that time is when a lot of companies were like, okay, we're definitely heading into a recession. What software aren't we really using? What should we cut? What should we renegotiate? That sort of thing. I think that played out. Like I saw a number of portfolio companies reporting like, I mean, some that had never had churn, <laughs> being like, oh, crap, we had our first churn. You know, somebody canceled. Uh, hopefully they'll come back type thing. So I think that's true. I, I do think that too is right. Yeah. A lot of people saying big accounts are dropping. Do you think it's like, is there a difference between the big accounts and small accounts? I think I see more churn in the, I think I saw more churn in the smaller accounts. Okay. I think the Got bigger it. accounts, I think, I think what happened is I, I see that enterprise sales cycles are lengthening and I see that the churn is incre- increasing in the smaller accounts. I think certainly there's so much uncertainty that I think a lot of the stuff that I've been hearing has been like, we thought this thing was in the bag, we've been negotiating for nine months, and now they say they're going to do a budget review and get back to us next year. I'm hearing a lot of that on the enterprise side. And I, and I think that's true. It's wait and see. Yeah, and, and it's funny because <laughs> some founders, like they going into this year or like, you know, during the year, they were like, you know, how can we increase our prices to make sure that we make up for inflation? And I, I was always like, yeah, how about trying to keep the customers at the price that you're doing right now? So yeah, but I, I I think that's what I'm seeing. Lengthening enterprise cycles and, and a bump in churn. I think churn has come down a little bit. I think like we definitely had a situation where like a lot of people were canceling things that maybe would have been spread out over the next six to nine months when they realized that we're not really using this thing. And so maybe it was sort of front loaded in sort of that May, June timeframe. So I'm hoping, <laughs> hoping that's the case. But certainly on the enterprise side, longer sales cycles and like, hey, let's talk next year on things that people just assumed were in the bag. 
prediction time. We are recording this in December of 2022. Tracy, six months out, let's say June of 23. Are things better? Are we are we starting the up cycle again? Are things worse? Or are we still kind of bumping along where we are right now? I mean, it's hard not being an optimist. I think it's my role here is always be the optimist, to be the foil to Anar's pessimist sometimes. Hot take uh, Tuesday. I, I, I just want to be, I just want to have hope for the future. And so, I mean, what? A lot of the recession is probably lingering effects from the pandemic. And the pandemic is at a point now, I think, like things are truly now starting to like return back to, to somewhat what was going on in like, say, 2019. And, you know, like, things are wobbly, but that by June, you know, maybe we're in a better place. So I feel optimistic. Anar is probably more scientific about this. This is all gut feelings for me. I think it's all gut feelings for all of us. It's a prediction of the economy. No one knows what's (laughs) going to happen. I mean, he reads Financial Times and Twitter. (laughs) And they're they're just making guesses too. Anar, what what are your thoughts here six months from now? Yeah. So I think, I think a couple of different things. I think that Depends on what, who you're asking, is it going to be better for? Like, I think consumers are still working through a cash cushion that, that was excess savings from the, from the cash injections that came during COVID. So I think there's a lot of people, you see that with, you see that with like credit card spend uh, versus savings, that sort of thing. I don't think that's really played through the markets yet. And I think those type of things will, will be reflected and will start to hurt cons- more consumer-facing companies. But by June, do I think the stock market will be further down? No. I went long on the S&P 500, so maybe that's the jinx that means we'll go and have another 20% down. <laughs> oh, no! You doomed us! Ah! <laughs> but, you know, but, um, I, I don't think the stock market will be worse off. I think some of the uncertainty will have played out. I think some of the expectations, particularly if you're looking about investment side, I think some of the, like, finally, some of the founders will realize that valuations have been reset and, like, you can't, you're not going to be a billion-dollar business with three million ARR. Like, that's not a thing anymore. But yeah, I think I think there's consumer hurt coming, and you know more through that time frame. And I think as a result, more consumer facing companies will will be hurt more. I think B two B SaaS will be relatively be relatively insulated. And I think, and I honestly think, I think most of the pain that pain in that sphere is done. I mean, you look at the B two B SaaS public B two B SaaS companies multiples are way down, like from twenty one times forward looking revenue to like six or five or whatever it is now. I think that's too low. I think and you know, you can just look at like the cloud ETFs, they're down sixty percent from the peak type thing. Do I think they go further down to go? I mean maybe, but I think they're gonna they're gonna come back faster than people expect. One thing on the computer consumer side, don't you think that consumer her is already here and you think it's gonna get worse because the inflation stuff? I know that my cost of living in Canada, I mean, probably everywhere because of inflation, but Canada, like things have skyrocketed. So do you think that consumer you think it's gonna get worse from what people are already affecting right now? Yes. I think consumers are being cushioned by the pain of inflation by their savings still. And I think that'll that'll run out sometime in the new year and that'll then impact earnings. On the on the consumer facing company side, that's what I think. Interesting. Okay, yeah, I'm hearing a lot of chatter. Does get it's my local area. I mean, this is sort like, of what you need. Mm-hmm. You basically need this is how you get inflation down. It's pain. People are. I don't understand politicians who are like, "What are you doing? You're causing unemployment with you raising your rates." I'm like, "Yeah, that's exactly what needs to happen." <laughs> yeah, you know, you need to increase it's a cycle. Yeah, like we have to have down cycles to have anything. This, you got to do it. I mean, this is literally what they're trying to do. Like, it doesn't make any sense to complain that, hey, don't you know you're causing this? I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what they're trying to do. Yeah, it's going to be, it's not going to be super nice, but uh, I think on the B2B SaaS side, it's relatively insulated. 
that's the thing to think about is it's so interesting to ask that question from a consumer perspective, from a large business perspective, from a public company perspective, from a SaaS company or a, a startup that was 3 million ARR and raised at 100 million or $500 million valuation. Each of those will have a different outcome, right? And the people who raised big buckets of money at these outsized valuations have a hell of a lot of work to do because multiples have collapsed so far that, that they have to 5x revenue, 10x revenue to get back to the valuation that they got two years ago, you know? So that's a whole different story. Yeah, I mean, literally, there were SaaS companies, in 2021, there were SaaS companies doing 3 million ARR that were raising at a billion dollar valuation. There's a lot of things. With the public market, multiple, that's, you know, I can't even do the math in my head, 300 times ARR or something insane. Now, a public company trading at six times, there's an awful lot of things that have to go right for you to get even close to that. Yeah, and so that's where the resilience of SaaS in general, especially B2B SaaS, but also companies with with unit economics that actually kind of make sense. And look, there are absolutely venture-backed companies that are growing fast that do have decent unit economics. We hear the news stories about those that don't because they often implode. But the majority of the microconf, tiny seed, bootstrap, mostly bootstrapped ecosystem, by definition, has to be pretty capital efficient. And so I do think there's insulation, even if there's headwinds, depending on your space, right? Because we can, each industry, if you're servicing schools versus government versus SMBs versus large, like each of those is reacting slightly differently. But across the board, I agree with you. I think I'm a fan. B2B SaaS. It's why we do what we do. (laughs) Before we move on, I'm going to weigh in. I think that within six months, same question I was asking the two of you, I think it will be about the same unless some world event happens. And the longer we're in kind of this bumping along, the more likely something is to happen because it's just time. And I I mean by someone invading another country, you know, heaven forbid, bad things that have happened that have sent us into recessions before. There've been black swan events, terrorist attacks, pandemics, you know, whatever. I don't, again, I'm not predicting nor desiring any of those, but if one of those happens, we will see another big drop. And if that doesn't happen, I'm probably just in the middle. I'm not. A, I'm neither a bull or a bear on the next six months. Hello, listener. This is Rob chiming in about a week and a half after this episode was recorded. I wanted to intro and perhaps caveat this next segment where Tracy Aynar and I discuss Twitter and Elon Musk and all that. And the challenge with recording on news topics like this is that sometimes these stories change so quickly. And certainly the Twitter story has unfolded over the past couple of weeks. This episode was recorded before the journalists were suspended. It seems like the verdict's still out on what's going on with that. But I just wanted to put a caveat in here to realize that our opinions expressed in this episode were from news as of a couple of weeks ago. And as things unfold, you know, in the coming weeks, I imagine those opinions might change. So with that, let's continue the episode and dive into the next topic. Last topic of the day, Twitter, Elon Musk. This is truly a topic for Hot Take Tuesday. Tracy. (laughs) We have the two opposite sides of the court, Tracy and Anar. (laughs) I don't know. We'll see. We'll see, right? So Tracy, Elon, obviously, I don't need to, he took it private. Everybody knows this. He's making changes. You can pay eight bucks to get a blue check. You know, there's stuff happening. He's trolling people with his tweets, et cetera, et cetera. Are you, A, are you still on Twitter? And B, you know, do you think Twitter is better or worse given that Elon is running it? I have been trying to kick the Twitter habit for a long time, and I stayed on it because it was useful for my career. 
It was useful for me to get information from other people that are in my space and get like early information, I would say, is, is, you know, eventually people write blog posts and whatnot, but that was like truly the place where to find what people were like actively working on. It led to a lot of speaking opportunities in my career. Like I've been on Twitter for like 10 years, but it like is for me, it was devolving into going on there and going, ugh, because there was a so, it was like incentivizing. This is pre-Elon. You know, Twitter was already going in the direction of incentivizing a lot of hot takes. <laughs> And a lot of like knee jerk reactions, a lot of negative negativity and whatnot. And for me personally, my life is stressful enough already. And so I would open it because I'm like, oh, I should do this for my career. And then I'd be like, uh, and I close in and move on to something else that more I'm kind of moving into more private communities and that kind of stuff. Uh, so the Elon thing was like, all right, cool. I have the reason I have the perfect motivation to just be like, I don't have to be on here anymore, at least until the dust settles and maybe evolves into something different. And it's a little depressing at being such like a fan person of Twitter for so long and then utilizing it so heavily for my career. It is kind of disappointing to feel like, oh crap, now I've lost this opportunity that I had in the past that doesn't, I don't feel like feel exists at this current moment. And it is funny when I do click on, I sometimes accidentally click into it and it's like, you have 25 notifications and I click on the notifications tab and it's like, you missed these tweets from Anar Volset. <laughs> it like really wants uh, me well, to read it. That's what you get. Yeah, it's all <laughs> Anar. Cursed. <laughs> Every oh, no. single one. I think so. The like, algorithm is doomed. Really? I'm missing out on all the tweets of Anar and it's really reminding me every time I load. Um, but that's my personal thing. I want to say one other thing in terms of like, that's a personal, that's my personal take. There has been something I've been seeing with Tiny Seed because I follow all the Twitter companies that if if someone is accepted into Tiny Seed, the Tiny Seed account only follows folks that are like in our ecosystem. So generally our founders and their companies if they have Twitter accounts. And that has been decreasing in number. And like the more, like I'll find accounts where they're like, they're inactive, they're not really being used. And so company-wise or like any, like for Tiny Seed as a company account, it's also becoming less useful because the folks, it seems like that we are investing in, the folks are probably applying are using it less and less. I don't like LinkedIn, kind of feel like that's LinkedIn now and I have to figure out how to investigate that because I'm years of hatred of LinkedIn. Just again, that's on a personal account. But I have been noticing this trend as I've been running the Tiny Seed Fund Twitter account and that the folks that are applying, like people either don't have accounts or the accounts are not used very often. And there are some people who do have accounts and that's really great, but overall it's kind of become less useful for Tiny Seed Fund. Still gonna use it, use it for Tiny Seed Fund. Stop using it for personal stuff. Of course, we're still running our accounts for Tiny Seed Fund because I think it's a really great, it's still a resource to find those folks, but just overall, it feels like it's different than it was in 2019. And our role set, same question. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm still on Twitter. I don't see myself leaving Twitter. Don't be crazy. It's <laughs> half my life. I mean, you know, I have the completely opposite view. I, I think, well, so I think first I will say this. I don't think the algorithm really impacts me because I don't use it. Like I, I have it set to the latest tweets. And like when I switch it to like whatever home is, aka the algorithm, yeah, I see a lot of crap. And I think in general, for a long, long time, both Facebook and Twitter and whatever their algorithms were basically just optimizing for the most engagement, which a lot of the time ended up just being rage. So, you know, that's unrelated to Elon, but that's sort of how I interact with with Twitter. And I think, honestly, I don't think I've seen much much change on Twitter. I, you know, I, I, I just, it isn't different to me. Like, it doesn't matter. And I think that combined with the fact that, like, I think the, the news media has completely lost their mind when it comes to Elon Musk. Like for some reason, he's become like the the big bad. It's the trash fire everyone wants to follow. Yeah, and it's just it's completely <laughs> insane to me. I'm like, what? 
I mean, what did the guy do? Like, you know, like let's let's just just calm down, stop hyperventilating, and think about what he actually did. Like, did he buy a company and fire a bunch of people? Yeah, sure. But so does a lot of people. Like, I think I think it's telling to look at the way in which you know these news organizations have been treating the way that Elon Musk legally bought Twitter and was forced to do so and wanted to back out, but the board of, the board forced him to go through with it, and then he fired people. And people are trying to get him to, you know, fire, you know, stop advertising, get companies to stop advertising. It's like, well, then he has to fire more people. I mean, you're, then you're using that as like a bad, he's such a big bad man. Compare that to how they've been reporting on, been reporting on SPF, I think is disgusting. I think the way that somebody who's I've been portrayed in the news media, if you, if you just read like the main news media about, you know, Elon Musk and about SPF, you would think that it was Elon Musk who stole billions of dollars from people and was just swanning about in the Bahamas. But it's not. I mean, like, it, that to me is completely insane. Elon Musk has also, he's been spending months, like, he's years of being on Twitter being a troll in lots of different ways. Like, it's not like, oh, random CEO took over C of Twitter and is making changes. It is a very controversial person who has inserted himself into the conversation in, in like, crazy fat manner. But he doesn't, don't follow him then. Like, turn the algorithm off. But that's turn the, the media. Like, he's, he, he brought the media to him. And they can't complain about the media then following him to Twitter and then reporting on his things because he's been, like, doing this service to bring the media's attention and everyone's attention on him. Yes, I don't mind the reporting on it. But if you look at the, if you, if you look at the angle, it's like every day, it's like, ah, oh, Twitter, like, it was only three weeks ago, Twitter was supposed to go down. Like, you know, sourced in the big new NBC was saying goodbye. Like, you know, we're giving up and like, this is going down anytime now. Well, source sources, complete as usual. I honestly, it, to me, people have completely lost their mind here. If you didn't know that Elon bought it, if you didn't read in newspapers and you didn't follow Elon, you wouldn't know. That's my hot take Tuesday. Hot take Tuesday. This is where... I see there's there's a nuance to this because I don't like I've seen some tweets of Elon's that I do not like I do not agree with I do they are trolly uh, but I have always respected him as like the Tony Stark of our day of an industrialist who's getting done in a way that like no one was building rockets and he figured it out no one was doing electric cars and he figured it out like I, I so I have like this this push pull of like I have respect for things that he's built but I also don't he and I don't agree on a lot of things right and and I wouldn't represent myself in that way i have made predictions so many predictions about twitter over the years we used to do prediction episode at the end of each year and in 2017 i predicted twitter would have major issues continuing a decline and in 2019 i predicted that they would be acquired and much like the person who predicts eight of the last two recessions i feel like i should be vindicated <laughs> that i did i you I, finally they did they lived up to this my take on whether it's better or worse at this point is tbd I don't think it's better for sure. I mean, the blue check mark, whatever. Like, I don't know that I've seen other changes. Like you, Anar, I don't really use the home feed that much. I use it a little bit, but not much. I do think that the the circus, the media circus around it is not helpful. Now we can blame the media for that. We can blame Elon for that. We can blame both of them for that, you know, and that's the way I'm thinking about it. I think that's detrimental to the whole situation because it's just a bunch of noise. And as as we just agreed... If none of that was being reported on, would we have noticed much of a difference? Tracy, any closing thoughts? <laughs> I mean, like, mm, 
the, the Elon thing is, is funny because I feel like he's a kind of a bull in a China shop and it just was something we weren't really seeing with his, his other companies. And now that he's in a very, in a company itself, that is a media communications company and then firing a bunch of people. And then the, all those people are going to be already using that service to kind of talk about those things and kind of blows up. I feel like there was like, this thing was kind of happening at other companies like Tesla, um, that we just didn't see. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of, do we know that or are we? Because I, I, I haven't looked into this, but I haven't heard that. So I, I hate to like speculate and act like... The problem is for me to say, I'm like, I want to say I've read that, but I can't, I don't have a proof right now. Yeah. Um, and it may, I, want, it I do say true. that there is, I'm in the market for an electric car and I'm not getting a Tesla, not because of Elon, but because there is like a whole subreddit just talking about the quality issues. They're having huge QA issues right now with Tesla. So it's like one of those things where they're like... You know, I'm happy that they've started and they really started that trend of electric car companies. I'm at this point where I'm just like, I'm not going to Tesla because they're having major growing pains right now because of the way that they probably had to, they had to start out because they were the first. And that's why I'm going with a different car. But I'm just like, you know, it's interesting about how he, he obviously has a management style. And that management style was perhaps the same in these companies and perhaps was less visible because it wasn't on a media company. And it's kind of interesting to think about, you know, what affects happened when someone who has a certain management style but goes into something that is so public or so like wildly talked about publicly. See, it's interesting for me because one of my sons came to me a couple days after the Twitter acquisition and he said, yeah, Elon Musk bought Twitter. I said, yeah, I know. And he got rid of the board. And I said, yeah, I know. If I took a company private, I would too. That's what you do. And he fired all the execs. And I said, yeah, that's what I would have done too. And he's going to do layoffs. And I said, that's what I would do too. Like to him, he, and at school, it had been presented like, oh my gosh, this guy did this stuff that's so unpredictable. It's like, no, no, no. If I had bought a company like that, I probably would have done all the same things. Again, Elon and I do not agree on a bunch of stuff, but if I'm going to buy a big company that's over. Yeah, I was going to say, would you do Friday 2 a.m. code reviews? Like that, kind, that I think that's more the, the, the astonishing no, thing. No, yeah. and that's that's where I'm saying, but that's a detail. Yeah, I'm not saying, oh, everything Elon did was good. I'm saying these top-level bullets that my son brought are, are like, I was like, no, that's what you do when you buy a company. But no, 2 a.m. code reviews or the get it done by this or you're fired or whatever. There's a bunch of stuff. It's like, would I run a company like that? No, I wouldn't. And so let's talk about those. That's kind of what I told him. I was like, everything he's doing is not right. But the four things that you just mentioned, I actually think are what any sensible person would do. I mean, like everyone else going on layoffs, like Google, Meta, everyone else too, and not being reported on the same way. Exactly. But it is like the like, ooh, look at this Twitter tweet of this person holding up a stack of papers talking about like, okay, Elon, I'm ready for my code review. And everyone's like, that's ridiculous. And then it just goes viral. You know, that kind of stuff is like not helping. But again, like think about why did you see that? Like, why did you see that? You saw that because the algorithm surfaced it for you. I follow Leah Culver too, who was <laughs> the know, one like, who did I didn't it, see it because so. I don't follow people <laughs> who are in that drama thing. Leah Culver is an old friend. Yeah, I just, I just don't follow those people. Again, so it doesn't struggle because I don't follow the algorithm. I mean, honestly, my honest to God view on this, and it may be deeply cynical, is that I think what has happened, the reason why there's so much heat and so much drama around this is because to journalists, Twitter is very, very important. And they had a very special status under the previous regime, and they've lost that status, and they're losing their I mean, worthy. I thought that was like the best part of Twitter is when that we moved into this, this world of having news access, easier access to folks and easier access for information to come out from like journalists and governments and companies and support teams and all that. Now it feels like those are the things that I care about the most and they're going to go away in favor of people all the time. But I only use it for posting. So this is great. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. This is, I know. ladies, gentlemen, <laughs> folks, listen to this episode. That is why we have Hot Take Tuesday. 
is that we can get opposing viewpoints, sometimes agreeing, sometimes opposing viewpoints on the topics of the day. If you want to follow our panelist, Tracy Osborne. Follow her on Twitter, who's not on Twitter anymore, but I am on Twitter at Tracy Bakes. At Tracy at MastodonSocial.com. Oh yeah, what's Mastodon? At Mastodon dot something. Oh my God. I am not giving you a response. (laughs) I don't use Mastodon either. I've decided I'm done. Oh God, there goes my camera. Oh, there was a table flip. No. Actually, it looks better now. So that's great. (laughs) At Tracy Bakes on Twitter. I like shaking my computer so much that my, my... Ring light fell down. <laughs> Tracy makes on Twitter. Thank you. <laughs> Follow me. If not responding there. Follow Anar, and you'll get spams with all of his tweets. <laughs> That's right. Anar Volset on Twitter. If you want to hear live tweeting of sporting events, and of course, as always, I'm at Rob Walling. We'd love to connect with you. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks to Anar and Tracy for taking time to join me on this pod today. As we enter this holiday season, I hope that you are having a restful time or at least looking forward to having a restful time over the next few weeks. This is a great time of year to take a step back, to reflect on the last 12 months, the progress you've made, probably the hurdles that you faced, and even the progress that you didn't make that you wanted to. It's a time of year to take a minute or an hour or a day if you can and look back and look ahead and reflect on things that you wish had gone differently, things that went amazing and look ahead to think about things you want to get done in the next year. As always, thanks for joining me today and every episode. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 640.